on the eve of the opening weekend of new Premier League and La Liga seasons, I'm joined by Ewan McTair, sub-editor of Madrid-based publication Marker. Firstly, for Grand Old Team, uh, I think for a player with the sheer volume of interest, such as James Rodriguez, it's wise to gather more than one opinion. So, Ewan, thanks very much for joining me. I'm sure you're a very busy man. Um, and firstly, you know, just in regard to the business of the deal, it's a, it's a two-year deal uh, with the option of a third if the club want to do so. The transfer fee is reported to be in the region of £22 million, despite James being in the last year of his contract at Madrid. So what were your thoughts on the move and do you feel like it's a good deal on the behalf of Everton? Yeah, it's strange that we're, we're talking about it just now. Obviously, it's been confirmed this week, but it feels like this has been in the works for weeks, for a month. It's, um, you know, we knew James was going to be leaving Real Madrid this summer. Um, things didn't go well last year when he was back there. He just basically was excluded from the squad by the end of things. He didn't even travel for the, the Manchester City game at the end. So we knew he was going to leave. Um, he'd been linked with Atletico Madrid for a little bit, but that wasn't going to happen. And yeah, Everton was always just there in the background, wasn't it, as an option because of the Ancelotti link, but also just for other reasons as well, I think. You know, I think uh, a move to the Premier League interested him um, when he was looking at clubs in the Premier League where he might have a, a role where he might fit in. Everton made sense. And um, yeah, now this week it's finally being confirmed. Um, but it's something that we've all kind of been getting our heads around for a few weeks already now, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we are certainly excited to see him finally make that move to the Premier League because honestly, I feel like it's, it's seemingly been every single year since he sort of broke through, even at Porto. And obviously, of course, after he scored that brilliant goal uh, at the 2014 World Cup and, and won the Golden Boot. Um, you mentioned that obviously that, that Ancelotti link is huge. And as someone based in Madrid, I'm sure you can offer a really interesting perspective on this. Uh, Hammer scored 18 times in 51, match, in 51 matches under Carlo Ancelotti um, at both Real and Bayern Munich. He was directly involved in, I believe, 28 goals in 32 league games with Ancelotti as his boss. Um, there are many examples throughout football uh, of players blossoming under certain managers. Uh, you know, you've got the likes of Ricardo Calvaglio under Jose Mourinho. Uh, and another example that springs to mind is Nico Cranshaw and Harry Redmer. Um, but for, from your experiences, what do you think it is about Ancelotti that brings the best out of Hammers? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, the ancelotti Hammers thing sometimes is a little bit overplayed, you know. Um, when you look at it, if you look at the players that Ancelotti has given the most appearances to over his career, Hamas doesn't even make the top 100. He's about 101, 102. Um, even Allen, who's just signed for Everton as well, Allen has played more matches for Ancelotti than Hamas has. It's actually a very short time they've been together. Just the one year they coincided at Real Madrid, a very short spell after he moved to Bayern Munich too before Ancelotti left there. So um, as you even mentioned, 51 matches. I mean, uh, many players uh, in one full season will play more than 51 matches for a coach. So the sample size isn't actually as, as big as we as we might think, but it is true when they coincided that 14-15 season 
Hamas's first one at Real Madrid, Ancelotti's second of his two years there. Hamas was brilliant. And it's it's also sometimes said that Ancelotti builds a team around Hamas. He wants to do that at Everton. I don't quite believe that because when you look at what happened at Real Madrid, he certainly didn't build the team around Hamas. If you look at the start and 11 players from that season, yeah, Hamas was up there. He was one of the most important, but there was a good five or six players more important than Hamas in that lineup. So Hamas that season, he played in a number 10 role where he likes. He, he played on the right, he played on the left, and he scored and assisted goals from all of those positions. So, and I think that's a encouraging news for Everton fans. It's not that the team is going to be built around Hamas and then if he gets injured, then you're, you're sort of already set up for a player who's not there or anything like that. I think his versatility is sometimes underrated and not spoken about enough. Yes, he would love to play a number 10, classic number 10 role just behind a striker, but Hamas can move around and be effective in other positions too. And he's already proven that with Ancelotti. Okay, that, that's really interesting that you do say that because I was I was hoping to get some sort of comment from yourself in, in that regard, formation-wise. As you said, James would be considered as a number 10, uh, a playmaker. And it's really hard, I feel, to accommodate these players in the modern game since, you know, 4-3-3 has become commonplace. Um, I think that's been given rise by the success of Guardiola's time at Barcelona, of course. Um you touched on it there. He played in numerous different positions at Madrid. Um, I've spoken to people who said they would feel as if he was played out of position under the likes of Benitez uh, and Zidane. So, with Everton at the present moment, we certainly seem to have looked to have stabilised our, our starting eleven, if you will. I feel like one of Ancelotti's biggest accomplishments since coming into the club was establishing that four-four-two. Necessarily, not necessarily gets the best out of the players that we've got, but we look stable in it. We don't look anywhere as near, near as fragile as we formerly did under, for example, under Marco Silva. Um, so you touched on it a little bit there. How would you describe James's performances within different tactical systems? Yeah, well, yeah. So we sort of touched on it that his preferred position is at number ten role because. The thing I think that is the best quality about Hamas is those little touches, those little passes that set up uh, the guys in front of him. He can get the ball and be crowded around and somehow find a way to move on to the next line um, in the team. And the easiest place, the most effective place to do that is, you know, just around the half circle outside the penalty area. He's so effective around about there, uh, even with crowded defences. And some of his best games for Real Madrid came against teams that, went to the Bernabeu and, and, and put, you know, five players, six players, seven players all in the box to try and just get away with a, maybe a, a sneak a draw or maybe just come out not embarrassed. And those were the games where Hamas was maybe the most useful because you needed someone to pick those locks and he could do that. And yeah, like I've said, if you're central, close to the goal, then you can be more effective doing that than if you're on one of the wings. But he can do it on the wings as well. You mentioned the 4-3-3 sort of system. That's what Real Madrid have played for the past few years. And he maybe hasn't quite worked at Real Madrid, but I don't think it's a tactical thing. When he has had good matches, he's been able to do it from one of the three midfield positions. Or on occasion, um, he's played as a left uh, player on a sort of forward three, but maybe drifting a little bit. So honestly, I think his versatility is underrated. It's going to be interesting to see um, where he does fit in exactly at Everton, especially with it being 
a different kind of league um, tactically in, in many senses it's a different kind of league um, so yeah we'll see exactly where he goes but I really expect that we'll see him in all sorts of positions um, over the season because like you say there is a maybe a defined starting lineup um, that you'll see this season but you know how long a season is, especially this season with so many games uh, packed tight together. Ancelotti's going to have to rotate his team. He's going to have to rotate his tactics a little bit as well. And that's why I think we'll see Hammers in, in some games in this position, some games in that position. Yeah, definitely. Um, with signings such as Alan, as you said, uh, uh, and Decore coming in from, from Watford, I agree with that. I certainly do think there's going to be a, a degree of trial and error in regards to what formation fits the team best. Um, and do you feel like putting Hammers in a midfield with, for example, Alan and Decore, who are just by default going to adopt more defensive responsibility, uh, that's obviously going to free Hammers up for you know, a more creative role within the team and give him a, you know, a free license to be, you know, that attacking influence within the team. Do you feel like, again, that's something that's going to see Hammers flourish? Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose we've talked about the versatility of Hammers, but he is not a defender, you know, and, and by any stretch of the imagination. Even when he's playing in midfield positions, he's not the kind of midfielder that likes to, to track back, that likes to get back. And and that's fair enough. That you can usually work. You know, you need players um, like that whose, whose job is at the other end of the pitch. And if they do that job, then Everything's okay if you have a couple of guys in behind. And yeah, maybe sometimes with the 4-3-3, when he has played in that midfield three, sometimes he is expected to, to drop back and help. And maybe that's where he hasn't um, impressed Dan in that sense, because he's a coach who, who likes to have Modric and Kroos in those positions who can create are some of the best passers as well in world football. But uh, Kroos and Modric both always tracking back when they have to. James isn't quite like that. But like you say, if Everton have the foundation behind him um, that allows him to worry less about these kind of things, then it's perfect, you know. He can uh, go and do his thing at one end and, you know, uh, let the others take care of the, the dirty work behind him and uh, it could work pretty well. You'd really like to think so. And I personally feel this could be Everton's answer you know, I think we've been longing for a, for a creative midfielder since Mikel Arteta left to go to Arsenal all those many years ago. Obviously, Ross Barkley being in and since moved on to Chelsea, but still, I don't feel like he ticked everybody's boxes in that sense of being, you know, a, a true number 10. Um, as you touched on it there, you know, the Premier League is different. The, there are many top creative midfielders within the, within the Premier League, you know, De Bruyne, um, Mesut Ozil, another player that, that you know, the former Real Madrid man. Uh, you've got Hakim Ziyech coming in for, for to Chelsea there, uh, and the likes of Bruno Fernandes. How do you feel James Rodriguez stacks up in comparison? Yeah, it's a good question because it depends what James Rodriguez. If it's a James Rodriguez of the last couple of years, then he's some way away from that. But when he was at his peak, 2014, obviously had that brilliant World Cup, had that great year with Real Madrid. That James Rodriguez could, could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with any of them, I think. Um, again, the game's evolved a little bit since then, but this is the thing. The Premier League has evolved as well, hasn't it? You talk about these players. Now when we talk about um, the best players of the Premier League, we're talking about some of the names you just mentioned. We're not talking about players like Keane or Vieira anymore, are we? 
the Premier League has evolved. Uh, you've got a lot of foreign coaches have come in with interest and tactical ideas. You've got a lot of more and more technical players are being brought in. And maybe it isn't quite as physical as it was 10 years ago. And maybe now that's where some of these attacking talents really can thrive and, and dominate uh, the entire league. And Hamas fits that perfectly. Um, it depends, like I said, what version of Hamas we get. But think about this. This is the first time since 2014 that he's at a brand new club, signing, uh, starting a brand new adventure in the sense of when he went to Bayern Munich, he was there on loan. Um, he, he was basically there because he wasn't wanted by Real Madrid. So he went, he was with Ancelotti, I'm sure. Um, he was motivated to a decent extent, but Ancelotti soon left and, and Hamas knew he was only there on loan. This time, he signed a permanent deal. He's there. He knows he's going to be there for the near future. So maybe we'll get the Hamas of 2014 who's super motivated, who's ready to start something new. And you even just see it, some of the sort of, um, just the, the bits that are coming out in the press, some of the interviews, some of the features featuring Hamas over the past few days since the announcement. He seems excited. He seems happy. He seems ready for this. And uh, yeah, I think we'll see at least uh, the 2014 Hamas in terms of motivation. And yeah, he's still got that talent there. So maybe we can see the, the Hamas of 2014-15. You'd certainly like to think so because no doubt this is a player that is, you know, in a technical sense, seriously gifted. Um, and to finish on Hammers, um, just for the Evertonians out there, um, of course, and I think one of the one of the great pluses to come from this is that, you know, obviously, I don't mind saying this, but Everton have been hugely punching beneath their weight um, these last few years. I mean, we haven't qualified for European football in a while. And, and a name such as Everton Football Club, in my opinion, should be qualifying for European football. Hopefully, these, this sort of recruitment goes a long way to making up that ground. Um, but for the Evertonians out there, could you just let them know, you know, what are the best aspects in James Rodriguez's game and what player are Everton getting? Yeah, well, like I've been saying, they're getting a player who just a few years ago was one of the very best in the world, one of the best at a World Cup. So you're getting a player who has all the technical quality uh, you could you could ever hope for. It's there. He's, you know, he's still only 29. He's still got all that technical uh, quality in his boots. Um, but you're getting a player who's who's had a tough few years, who's lost motivation a little bit, like I've said before as well. Towards the end of the, the season last year at Real Madrid, he basically checked out. He, he literally said to Zidane he didn't uh, want to be included in the last few uh, squads of the season because he knew he wasn't going to play. And, and so Zidane didn't pick him. He didn't even travel to the last few games. So you're getting a player who's who's come through a bit of a difficult time, um, but has the talent there. And if you can just get the motivation, and that goes back to what I'm saying about 2014, this is the first time in, in six years that he's starting a brand new adventure. Um, maybe you do get a motivated player. And then you're also getting a, a, a marketing, <laughs> you know, goldmine really with Hammers as, as well. And, you know, it's we want to focus on what's going on in the football pitch, but it is something important. You, We all kind of know by now that um, the sort of myth of a uh, popular player pays off his transfer fee in short sales, that's not true. But there are some players on a certain level that can make an impact in the business side of the club. And Hammers is one of them. If you look at his, his social media reach, after Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo and Neymar, next up's Hammers. He is so popular in Colombia, in South America. We've even seen it this week with the announcements lighting up uh, that big tower in Bogota. 
Times Square as well, there was a Hamas um, advert. You know, this is a player that can really uh, reach around the world and, yeah, it doesn't necessarily lead to, to greater shirt sales, leading to greater income. But in the long term, it can have an effect next time Everton sit at the negotiating table with sponsors, uh, with kit suppliers. The fact you've got Hamas, you can ask for that little bit more. So um, it goes back to what you're saying, you know, Everton, maybe it's been a few difficult years, you know, Everton, um, you know, we're, we're traditionally one of the top six clubs, you know, now the top six doesn't include Everton and maybe um, they're in danger of the top eight, not even including Everton if they have another couple of uh, bad seasons. But with a player like this, if you can do it on the pitch and bring some sort of attention off the pitch too, then Everton can really push on and, and start to break that top eight, top seven, top six again. Definitely. You make some fantastic points there. And something else I wanted to get your opinion on from an Everton perspective, obviously the, the predecessor to Zinedine Zidane uh, at Real Madrid was, of course, Carlo Ancelotti. Um, so I'd just like to hear what uh, are your thoughts on Carlo Ancelotti at the present moment? Obviously, he did move on to Napoli and although Gattuso taken over, it can be argued that um, Ancelotti did set Napoli up for that cup win at the end of the last season. Um, his move to Everton, of course, is another one of those things, like you've just mentioned, that certainly raises the profile of the club. Um, someone of that calibre, someone of that, that stature, someone who is a proven winner no matter where he goes. Um, that just might be what Everton need in order, as you say, to break into that bracket again of being one of the top clubs in the country. So from his time at Madrid uh, and what you may have seen of him now, what are your thoughts on Carlo Ancelotti? Yeah, I really like him. I think there, there's few people in football who don't like Carlo Ancelotti because he's a nice guy. He's a friendly guy. He's um, a, a lot of fun as well. And and I think that's what he brings to, to a club is... You know, he's he's a, a man manager, he's a motivator, you know. Let's not forget he is a brilliant tactician too. But one of his main assets is is he can get players on his side and get them going. And that's really what he did at Real Madrid. He came in at Real Madrid after Jose Mourinho had been there and he burned a few bridges in the dressing room. He'd created a bit of a stir, um, you know, forcing Iker Casillas out. And Ancelotti came in and managed the situation perfectly. Kept Casillas, the captain, club legend. He kept him in the mix by giving him uh, matches in cup competitions and and sticking with uh, another goalkeeper in the league and and mixing it around and, and trying to keep Casillas happy and therefore some of his allies in the dressing room happy. And that's the kind of thing Ancelotti can do. He can manage um, some of the bigger egos in in sport. And yeah, at Everton, you know, every club in the Premier League now is very international. You have players coming from all kinds of backgrounds. You have players coming at different levels, different stages of their career. And Ancelotti, I think, is brilliant for all of that. He can get a young player and get him motivated, get him breaking into the first team. And then he can also look after veterans and explain to them how much they'll play, how much they'll be rotated. And I think that's just one of his main qualities is being able to manage the, uh, the people of a dressing room and then also the footballers, of course. Definitely. That, that's fantastic. And I'm sure with young talent, you know, we, there are plenty of young players within that Everton dressing room, the likes of Richarlison, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, Anthony Gordon, a local lad coming through as well. That'll be music to both Evertonians ears and the young players ears in that hopefully Ancelotti can unlock their top class potential. 
Now, that concludes the Everton segment of the podcast. Um, and as I said, you and I, I would be really interested to hear um, more about yourself uh, and the job that you do. I mean, as a Madrid-centred news outlet in Marca, um, Real Madrid have just come off the back of winning their first league title in, I think, two seasons. And if I'm not wrong, I think it's their third in nine seasons. Um, you've obviously had, you know, the, the massive news story uh, of Messi's contract standoff with the Barcelona board. Um, in your role as sub-editor, how have you found the last few weeks? Um, yeah, it's been a lot busier than I think any of us expected it to be. We had, obviously, this year has been so um, so crazy with the, the pandemic and the, the rescheduling of the season. Um, so there wasn't going to be a big off-season this year anyway. Champions League final, of course, finishing on August 23rd and then La Liga getting underway this weekend. But, um, yeah, Messi certainly kept everybody busy. And um, from Marcus' point of view, it was obviously uh, a massive story. And, um, yeah, lots of articles, lots of coverage of the Messi saga and lots of live blogs just trying to keep up to date with all the latest developments. And, yeah, it's been a lot busier than we expected because, obviously, this transfer window um, was supposed to be quiet because clubs weren't supposed to have money. Um, but when the best player in the world says he wants to leave, uh, it creates a bit of a stir. Would you say that's one of the biggest stories you've had to cover since being in Spain? Yeah, probably. And and it's strange in the end because in the end, you could almost say it was a non-story. Nothing's mm, happened. Exactly, yeah. um, but at the same time, the interest in it was was so huge because it was messy. And, you know, since I've, I've been working, I've been working with Mark in English now, um, for about four years, since 2016. And in that time, we've seen Neymar leave La Liga. We've seen Cristiano Ronaldo leave La Liga. We've had the Griezmann saga. Will he, won't he leave Atletico to Barcelona? No, he won't. Now, yes, he will. And we've had lots of big transfer stories in that time. And and this Messi one, just the hint of him leaving Barcelona after two decades um, was probably bigger than all of them. Yeah, that's interesting. It's funny that you mentioned that because I... I wonder if you have any thoughts or can attest to my current theory on La Liga. So when I was growing up, it, you know, I've got no problem in saying it was really my first true love in regard to, to football. Um, it seemed like the place every player wanted to be. You, you know, you look at Barca, you had a young Lionel Messi coming through. My favourite player of all time is Ronaldinho. You got the likes of Samuel Eto'o. Um, obviously, later on, then Guardiola come in with the likes of Terry Henry. Um, you had the, the Madrid Galacticos uh, and Atletico had some wonderful strikers in particular, you know, the likes of Torres, uh, Forlan, Aguero, Falcao. Um, as you mentioned there, I feel like since the likes uh, of Neymar and Cristiano ha- have left uh, and legends such as Xavi and Iniesta have retired, there seems to have been a real power shift. Uh, away from Spain. Uh, I think we've seen that in the likes of English team performing better in Europe. Obviously, you know, not to my pleasing, but Liverpool have obviously done well in the Champions League. And, and two seasons back, we saw, obviously, um, Liverpool and Tottenham uh, and Arsenal and Chelsea in the in both the Champions League and Europa League finals. Um, and we may well see that in the coming season with German teams, obviously with Leipzig doing better than usual in Europe and Bayern Munich since, you know, winning the Champions League. 
do you have any thoughts on that or do you think it's just a, a mad conspiracy theory no no i think there's something to it you know there's definitely been a shift and i think it comes down to just that there's more big clubs now than there were um you know 10 years ago 20 years ago you know 20 years ago the big clubs in the world were barca real madrid man united and then there was maybe one other maybe one of the milan teams maybe byron were good at that time maybe arsenal but now you have so many big clubs with a lot of money and part of that's because of you know the wealth that's come into to clubs like psg and man city but also just financial fair play sort of meaning that there's a limit on how much barcelona and Real Madrid can spend and at the same time other clubs can sort of rise up to that ceiling and that's why you've now got this sort of top six in the Premier League where all of them can go out and um, sort of afford excellent, excellent players. So you look at it just now, if, if PSG didn't have the money uh, they have, Neymar would probably still be at Barcelona. If, if, if Manchester City didn't have the money they had, Bernardo Silva, for example, would probably be at Real Madrid or something like that. So I think that's part of it. It's just there's more wealth in the game. It's spread around more. So um, Barcelona and Real Madrid, they always top these money charts. They're still uh, the, the clubs with the most money in the game. But they've got so many more competitors now when they want a Galactico sign-in. They're not just competing with each other for the best players. They're competing with uh, the best teams from, from all of the top five leagues. So, um, yeah, I think that's why you see the, the best talents spread out a little bit more. Um, which is a good thing because although we had lots and lots of talents at Barcelona and Real Madrid um, a decade or two ago, a lot of them were often on the bench. You know, Real Madrid could only field 11 Galacticos at a time. So maybe it's better that we get to see um, a sort of Champions League uh, last 16, last eight, like we've had the last few years where you go into it now, the last 16, last eight, you never have any idea who's going to win the Champions League, who's even going to get to the semi-finals or the final, whereas... Not even not that long ago, you could probably write in, you know, Barca, Madrid, Man United, and Bayern if they didn't meet each other before. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Um, and just on yourself, um, in regards to your your own career, I'm I'm really fascinated by you know someone from Britain to Scotland, such as yourself, moving abroad to to cover foreign football. As it, it's something hopefully uh, I'd look to do in the future. Um, I'm just wondering how how did that move come about and and just if you could walk us through it if you wouldn't mind um yeah i mean i don't really uh like to talk about myself too much but um i will because there's probably a couple of like interesting sort of tips maybe to to glean from it but yeah when i was at, at university i studied a, a bit of spanish and um, as part of that i got to go and live in barcelona for a year um i was working in an office there and I just loved it, you know, different kind of pace of life, different kind of life, different people. And, um, yeah, always wanted to move back and, and managed to to come back and thought this time, let's try out try out Madrid. Makes more sense for, for covering football. It's more central. There's um, two massive teams in the city instead of one. So um, that's kind of how I ended up in in Madrid. And then, yeah, once you're here on the ground, it's um, it's always so much easier to, to cover the game, to cover what's going on because you're in the day-to-day -day, um, sort of news cycle. You're in the day-to-day -day talking to people, getting a sense of what's going on. And um, yeah, it's 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 uh, certainly <laughs> a good experience. It's a little bit different just now with the pandemic and everything that's going on. But um, yeah, when you're there and you can go around the grounds and sort of get a feel for what's going on, you can always, I think, provide a bit more, a bit more value. And um, yeah, it's, 
uh, it's good to 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 go abroad, try new things, and I hope other people can do that too. And you know, we're seeing it even more just with footballers, aren't we? More and more um, footballers from the UK are now going abroad, trying different leagues. And um, I think before this pandemic, at least, it was becoming a lot more connected. Um, this world we live in, so it's always a good thing, I think. Yeah, and obviously the, this pandemic has been horrible. It's cut off a lot of opportunities for a lot of people, and fingers crossed that travel restrictions can you know start at ease over over the coming months or so. Um, just in regards to your personal preferences and your experiences while being in Spain, I'm sure you've seen some tremendous games um, and tremendous talent over there. So. Have you got any games that spring to mind that you've covered that you'll never forget? Any players, individual performances that you've seen or goals that have just blew your mind? Yeah, I mean, every every classical is is just is just in, insane, really. You know, the um, that was one of the last games before uh, the lockdown we had. I think it was first of March we had the the last classical, and there at the Bernabeu, you just see how how many people have travelled. Um, from all over the world, you know, there was people from coming from from Mexico, from China, from Australia, from the US, from everywhere, you know. And um, for a lot of these people, they've been saving up for a game like that for for years, and and came over because they were a huge Barcelona fan or a huge Real Madrid fan. And it's I don't think there's any game quite like that um, in the world. And in terms in terms of players, I mean, over the past year. Um, I've really, really loved watching Rodrigo. You know the young talent coming through at, at Real Madrid. He arrived last summer, um, arrived to start with the B team at first, but he was so good there that Zidane gave him a, gave him a few opportunities. And just to see his first few matches there, um, you sort of were, were watching that feeling like you were seeing uh, the start of something special because um, you know his first touch, his first goal, he <laughs> his first touch was to bring down a pass from. Uh, all the way across the, the the field and and start a run, start a dribble and score. He basically scored with um, his first possession of the ball in in Spanish senior football. So that was that was cool to see that. And it's a similar thing, I think, just now with Ansu Fati coming through. It's it's these kind of moments that maybe you don't quite realise in the time and um, that you're seeing something special. But looking back, um, a lot of people maybe in 15 years will be where where are you when um, Ansu Fati or Rodrigo broke in the scene and. Um, hopefully I can say I was there definitely that, that's interesting and yeah as you mentioned they are two players really to, to keep an eye on over the progression of their careers um, Ewan I just want to say it, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk thank you very much for your time um, in regard to the podcast you're more than welcome to come on in the future and talk about Spanish football or whatever you'd like no problem my pleasure thank you